In 1872, the United States Supreme Court denied Mrs. Myra Bradwell, who had apprenticed, passed the bar exam, and had support from legal professionals, the right to practice law. Their decision quoted the Supreme Court of Illinois' opinion that allowing women to be attorneys was never contemplated. A lot has changed in the legal profession since 1872, but there is always room for improvement. From the Florida Bar's Henry Latimer Center for Professionalism, this is never contemplated. Hello, I'm Heddle Desai, your host for Never Contemplated. In a previous podcast with Judge Med Kerr, I provided some percentages and information regarding mental health issues among lawyers and the Florida Bar's resources for treatment and help. These resources are available to members of the Bar who have reached a point where there may be a problem affecting a lawyer's professional and or personal life. Today, I'd like to share a little about the Florida Bar's wellness program, which provides preventative measures for avoiding such problems. The mental health and wellness of attorneys was listed as a high priority in the 2018-19 Florida Bar Strategic Plan. The Florida Bar's Mental Health and Wellness of Florida Lawyers Committee, known as the Bar's Wellness Committee, was established as a result of this priority in order to educate legal employers, judges, and lawyers about the benefits of balancing personal lives and career obligations. The Wellness Committee provides CLE, videos, podcasts, meditations, and self-assessments to help lawyers manage stress and develop healthy habits to attain better physical and mental results. The Bar's wellness website includes tips for better sleeping, exercise, eating, and opportunities for developing social relationships. Our guest today is not only a judge, but an advocate for wellness among the legal profession. Judge Tarlika Nunez Navarro is known for her wellness check-ins and teaches classes on wellness to law students, lawyers, and other judges. She has co-chaired a Young Lawyers Initiative for Mental Health and taught numerous CLEs about the importance of meditation, daily regimes, and self-regulation. She has said, quote, if we are not healthy ourselves, we cannot serve our communities the way that we should. Judge Navarro graduated from St. Thomas University School of Law, cum laude, and has been a circuit court judge since 2018. She currently presides in Orange County over the criminal division. Judge Navarro has won numerous professional awards and honors, including the Golden Gavel Service Award from Broward County Bar Association, the Top 40 Under 40 from the National Trial Lawyers Association, and Judge of the Month from the Broward County Hispanic Bar Association. Welcome, Judge Navarro, and thank you for joining us today on Never Contemplated. How are you today? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm great. We always start at the beginning at our podcast, and so I'm going to start at the beginning of your story today. I know you're a fifth-generation Floridian, but you're also a first-generation Colombian-American. Tell us how that came about. Well, my father um, came from Colombia uh, to go to med school here, and he met my mother, who was a fourth-generation Floridian. Um, he wanted to be a small-town doctor, so he moved to a small town in Florida, Lake Placid, Florida, and met my mother, um, and they uh, fell in love and got married and had me. And so you grew up uh, in Lake Placid? I did. Yeah. Um, now, your dad was a doctor. What did your mom do? My mother was a photographer. 
So neither one of them were lawyers, but it must have been interesting having a doctor for a dad in a small town. Uh, Was he one of the only doctors? Yes, actually he was. Um, It was a a very small town back then. It's certainly grown. uh, I think we had about 2,000 in our hometown, uh, two stoplights. He was the family doctor. He, um, you know, assisted and tended to everyone in town. He, He made house calls with his little black bag after work. We would always go together. Um, and I just remember, uh, going and seeing his patients with him every evening. Um, and they would trade him like tortillas and guacamole. And, you know, it was really special growing up in that, in that, um, small town environment and, uh, being able to, um, look up to my father as, as really the town doctor, um, because he was all about service and community, um, to others. And so um, it was a it was a really special uh, upbringing. Well, I know that it must have been difficult for everyone in town to know who you were, uh, and who your family was. But did you at some point, decide not to be a doctor because of your travels with your dad? Or, or how did that come about? You know, my dad always would tell me when I was growing up to be a lawyer. Uh, I didn't really take it seriously until probably um, when I came back, when I graduated from uh, undergraduate school at the University of Miami. I traveled all around the world. I backpacked all around the world. um, And I taught in, you know, villages. I kind of really lived before I, I started thinking about uh, settling down and being a lawyer. Um, But I think what started, what planted that seed, of course, was my father. Um, But then, of course, service really um, to others and being kind of like an advocate for the the voiceless. And I I know that I wanted to um, be in the Peace Corps. And I thought that maybe being um, having a law degree would help with that. At the time, it was very challenging getting into the Peace Corps. Well, I want to talk to you about your travels because they sound really interesting. Uh, But before we get there, let's, uh, I imagine that it was difficult to go to high school and, you know, just grow up as the doctor's kid uh, in such a rural area. Tell us about that. Well, actually, my mother, uh, my mother and father divorced when I was very young, three, um, and she married a rancher. And we all moved to a ranch in LaBelle, Florida, which was even smaller and more rural. Let me tell you that I have been to LaBelle. My roommate from law school is from LaBelle, Florida, and her grandparents owned uh, an orange farm. I think it's all orange farms out there at orchards. Is that right? That's yes, absolutely. So my stepfather is, and my brothers now, um, they all are um, citrus uh, growers and also beef and uh, cattle. Uh, so we are, we were surrounded by um, citrus and um, you know the challenges of growing up on a ranch and you know it, our driveway was thirty minutes long. Uh, so to and from the gate would be an hour just to get outside of um, the ranch. Um, so you mentioned going, that was seventh grade, we're going into seventh grade. So it was certainly a challenge just getting to school and back. What kind of classes, what kind of student were you in middle school and high school? Well, um, 
because of the challenges of living on the ranch, my mother uh, decided to send me to boarding school at a very young age. I was uh, 11 or 12. Um, I think I did one year in LaBelle and then uh, the challenges, of course, of, of being in, in on the ranch my mother sent me to boarding school and that was the closest boarding school was uh, the IMG Sports Academy. So I grew up really in uh, Bradenton after that at um, Nick Bulletary, which is now IMG, um, studying tennis and golf. So sports took a priority in my life from then on. And I think that's why I take such an interest now in academics and books and reading and education, because I kind of didn't have that uh, foundation uh, early on. We interviewed Judge Wolfson in Miami, and she talked about the importance of or the role that being on a softball team played and how that influenced her today, uh, being a team player and things like that. What uh, what were your takeaways from learning in an athletic academic environment and playing tennis and golf? Well, playing at that level with the best in the world, um, my takeaways, it was very humbling from a very early on, um, you know, playing Anna Kornikova, Maria Sharapova, uh, Andrea Agassi was there, uh, you know, Mon- Monica Seles, all the top tennis players in the world and golfers. Um, so you were humbled on a daily basis. You, you know, I did, I was never the cream of the crop. Um, I was constantly uh, challenged, which I think is, is probably a very good thing um, early on. It's hard lessons, but, you know, I look back and I think, you know, I learned a lot from IMG. Um, You also, because you're at such a a wonderful facility, you're, um, you know, we were, we were cutting edge in sports as far as uh, learning mental health awareness. And, um, you know, like I started doing hot yoga very early and meditation and all of the, of the, um, the components that come into being a a great athlete uh, at a very early age. So when that's instilled in you from the time you're 12, you kind of don't break out of that cycle. So that's why um, I teach that, you know, to law students and to judges across the state. I really try to prioritize mental health first and foremost among anything else, because I think if you take care of yourself holistically, then you can take care of others, which is really what our profession and legal community is about. Well, since we're on the topic of wellness, and I know that it's very dear to you, what are some of the places that you think that lawyers need to improve on in their daily regimes in becoming better people, but healthier and emotionally, but also professionally? Well, I try to start them young, uh, go get into law schools early on. I speak at, you know, orientations uh, often at law schools throughout the state. I teach now at FAMU and I was at St. Thomas University um, where we, we basically say, listen, if you don't prioritize your health, first and foremost, getting through law school and getting through being a young lawyer and then throughout your career, then you're never going to be good for anyone else. So putting yourself first, your health first, um, prioritizing your schedule and having boundaries. We try to teach that early on. So that way they, they are more, um, 
effective as as advocates and they protect themselves. Um, and also um, that gives them the ability to kind of um, hopefully serve with compassion and empathy and really get to professionalism, which, uh, you know, I believe are the issue with professionalism is mental health and awareness of, you know, how you're coming across to others, how you're treating others in your profession. So I think if we tackle mental health first and and wellness, then I think that will take care of the uh, professionalism issue that we see uh, across the board throughout the state with the bar. Well, when you're on the bench, uh, what are some signs of someone who needs some assistance, let's say, in the area of wellness or just in a, in a better attitude? What are some problems you might see on the bench? Well, I think, you know, even before I was on the bench, I was seeing the issue on the bench. And that's why I really took uh, the initiative to become a judge, because I wanted to see that change. Um, and this comes from my childhood as well. You know, my father was a holistic doctor. He taught me very early on about holistic medicine and meditating and taking care of yourself. So this is very deep rooted and something I'm, I'm passionate about, as you can tell. And I could see that judges were, you know, they're tired, they're stressed, they're, you know, it's very demanding job being a judge. And the same thing goes to being an attorney. Um, and we see that from the bench. Um, I see uh, attorneys who are flustered. They're, they have to be in three or four different courthouses in one day. Um, they have uh, multiple court appearances in the same in the same courthouse. They have judges who are, you know, screaming at them. And it's, it's just, it's tolling and, and clients who are, who are, um, you know, demanding of their time. So uh, I think it's, it's, we're seeing it every day from the bench, but also, you know, we're seeing it on the bench and with my colleagues as well. And that's why I try to teach judges really coping mechanisms to um, protecting, again, protecting themselves before they get on the bench. So they are, are, better prepared uh, in their tool belt of wellness to be able to cope with what they're seeing every day. And the same thing goes to lawyers and young lawyers and law students. It's across the board. Um, I I teach the same things to uh, law students that I do to my judges. Well, I know we don't have enough time for a full class on that, but do you have one or two tips that you can share with our our listeners on um, how to maybe just take a time out if, if they're in a stressful situation. Well, that's the perfect first tip is to take oh. a timeout. You know, so many judges or lawyers don't even understand timeout. You know, at any moment you can take a deep breath and count down, do a, a f- five minute um, or a five breath uh, deep inhales and hold and exhale. That's just a very simple uh, way to um, get regulated and to take a moment for yourself, uh, for judges and for lawyers. Um, and I, I try to teach um, just daily routines. It's, it, it's very, uh, personal to that judge or to that, uh, lawyer, to that law student, um, when I'm working with my law students as to what is, will give them the ability to, um, just get into that flow state where their mind can take a break. Um, so for some people it's running for others, it's yoga. Some, it could even be coloring. We just taught at circuit court conference and we had coloring for judges because, you know, every person is different and, and everyone's brain works a little bit differently, um, as to what allows them to shut off. So when I'm working with my law students and young lawyers and mentees and, and judges, I try to take a very personal approach to 
to their wellness and um, what will allow them to kind of take that step back on a daily basis and be more effective. Well, uh, I want to thank you for that advice, but I also want to turn back to your path. Did you graduate from the academy and then go to college or how long were you at the academy? I was at the academy until 11th grade, and uh, then I moved to Melbourne um, with my mother. My grandmother was dying of cancer over there, and my mom had to go take care of her. Um, so my mother took me out of the academy because it was on the other side, the east coast of Florida. And uh, I ended up graduating from Melbourne High School and then went directly to California uh, to go to college. And really what took me out to California was surfing. Um, I've been surfing surfing since I was a, a young girl. Uh, to this day, I surf a lot. So um, California was the place at that time. And I went out there to surf. Did you know how to surf before you went to California? Yes, I grew up surfing. Um, my, Like I said, my grandmother was in Melbourne Beach. Um, so the weekends when we would visit, uh, I, we grew up surfing on the beach. So you take how long? A year or two to surf? Yes. Yeah, so I went out there and I stayed about a couple of years, um, my first two years in college, um, just really working, working my way through college and um, surfing and traveling all of Mexico. Um, my, my Both of my parents were big into travel and gap years and just kind of really feeling your way through life. Uh, so they have a less traditional approach to uh, probably most uh, parenting. Uh, so my mom took me out there. She, we rented a, um, a motor home and we took a month and a half to get across the United States, took all my surfboards and she set me up there in uh, California and kind of just said, okay, you're on your own. And were you going to classes and surfing at the yes. same time? Yes, I was working, I was surfing, and I was um, going to college and, and really try to figure out what I wanted to do. Uh -huh. And what did you end up getting a degree in? I came back to the University of Miami, and I ended up getting a degree in broadcast journalism, uh, communications, and University of Miami requires a second degree, so I have a degree in anthropology, uh, and I chose anthropology because it did allow me to do my studies uh, around the world, so I actually got that degree from um, traveling all over the world, um, and that's why I chose anthropology. Well, uh, I know you did a semester at sea. What was that like? Um, semester did it at involve sea. surfing? <laughs> it did, um, <laughs> and a lot of traveling um, and um, seeing the world, and you know, seeing different cultures, and uh, really. It it was exposure at that age to be able to go into places like Cambodia and Vietnam and see uh, those type of um, areas that you wouldn't see, uh, you know, normally um, learning about their cultures, being able to stay in their homes with the, with um, the families and having homestays in those countries. It was enlightening for sure. Well, it sounds like you, didn't just travel in this hemisphere, you that you went all over the world. Tell us a little bit about how that was. Were you traveling by yourself? Were you traveling with a school group? So Semester at Sea is actually a retired cruise ship and you circle the globe typically. So we started in Vancouver and we 
um, crossed over to Japan and then went into China and Africa and all, all we, you know, Cambodia and Vietnam, Cape Town, uh, Cuba, which was a really uh, amazing experience back then to, to visit Cuba because at that point people, you know, weren't visiting Cuba. So that was a, that was a big deal. Same with Cambodia. So, um, you actually circle the globe in a, in an old, uh, very old cruise ship. And were you taking classes on the cruise ship or were they just life lessons? <laughs> yes. Yes. Intense classes. Um, and it, it's very challenging actually. People don't realize it, but, uh, you know, from each location you have to learn about to the next location, you're learning about the culture, their customs, their food, um, their government, um, their laws. So when you get to that country, you know, uh, a little, you know, you know, you have a foundation and understanding about that country and the people and customs and how to approach um, living and staying in a family in that uh, culture. Well, you graduate from UM, but you still are not going to law school. <laughs> you take some time off. Uh, I know I took uh, some time off. I was an economist for a year and a half before I decided to go to law school. Uh, I think you also had another profession. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so after I graduated from the University of Miami, like I said, I always wanted to go into the Peace Corps. Um, and so I just traveled. I, I backpacked around the world again um, because I, I, I was coming off semester at sea. So I just went into uh, backpacking on my own and, and working from village to village. That was a way for me to make money. I taught English um, in villages. And so I would just go um, from village to village teaching English when I was needed. And that also allowed me to surf around the world. Did you concentrate on one area of the world or you were just, you're saying villages? Is it, was it one country or were it different Central places? and South America primarily. And that's good surfing. Yes. Pacific, yes. You taught English. Uh, you also, I, I think, sold yachts for a little while. How was that? <laughs> and so where I was came, that? Yes, I came <laughs> back after traveling, uh, backpacking. I did a couple years of that and then um, came back and went into real estate, selling real estate. And that led to selling yachts, um, just the sales aspect of that. I, I was contemplating um, going into law school, but I was also um, trying to save money. So I didn't take out too um, much in student loans. So I was really preparing for going to law school and saving up, um, saving the money for that. What made you come back? Were you a real estate agent in Florida? Did you come back to Florida? Yes, I did. And what made you come back to Florida? My family's here. All of my family, you know, um, I came back to Florida, started working in Miami and stayed in Miami um, up until um, I took a, a job at the prosecutor's office after law school at, um, in Broward County. So you went to law school and you went to St. Thomas uh, University where you are also, you also teach classes now. What was it like to have had all that travel and work experience compared to your other students who may have just like come straight from college? Well, I went to St. Thomas University, which, you know, a lot of the students are second career students, older students, um, ninth students. Um, and uh, so I wasn't, you know, that 
old, and I put that in quotes, you know, I was... I didn't say you were old. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I think it's less traditional, that school, and that's why I take I, I really um, take an interest in teaching or doing workshops there, uh, because I do think it uh, lends itself to students with a lot of grit who may or may not be working one, two jobs um, while going to law school, taking care of their family, that type of thing. You see that often at St. Thomas University, which um, which is the same here at FAMU. And that's why I chose to teach at FAMU as well. I, I like that grit in students. I like teaching those type of students. And um, I think that's what that's what St. Thomas stands for. Well, I know that you uh, you said that you after law school, you went to the state attorney's office. But while you were in law school, I think you did a, an in, a couple of internships or externships. Uh, one was with the public defender. You also clerked uh, at the domestic violence court. What kind of cases were you handling or seeing? Sure. So in law school, um, I fell in love with mock trial, uh, with criminal um cases really. Uh, so I went into the public defender's office and did my internship, externship there. Uh, from there, I did a clerkship with Judge Amy Karen, who um, really was the pioneer to the domestic violence court in Miami. So uh, I sat in the domestic violence court with her. I um, then did my CLI with the public defender's office and did domestic violence um, cases as well there. Um, so I would say primarily domestic violence during law school. And those must have been difficult cases to actually watch as a law student. Yes, very difficult. And actually try as a law student because as a certified legal intern, they just gave you a box and um, your supervising attorney, mine was on maternity leave and they said, okay, you ready to try cases? So I actually got to get um, have my uh, my own caseload and try cases as a certified legal intern. So uh, when I left there, I had tried 12 jury trials before even becoming a lawyer with a supervising attorney, which was a wonderful experience. Um, that, you know, you don't get a, a, a opportunity to do that very often as a law student. And then so that gave me the ability to go into the state attorney's office with trials. So uh, you start at, uh, I think it's Broward, was it the Broward County State Attorney's Office? Yes, Broward County State Attorney's Office. What kind of cases were you handling at that point? So I went into the um, state attorney's office. I was put into misdemeanor and I did my three-year commitment there. Um, I did felony cases, uh, life cases. I was the lead in um, the criminal division in my division. Um, so really, you get an opportunity to see all of the cases from misdemeanor straight up to felony um, life cases. Well, I know you said during your internship, your su your supervisor was out on maternity leave. Were there any um, mentors or attorneys that kind of uh, led you through the the Broward County State Attorney's Office that you looked Absolutely. up to? Absolutely. Yeah. So there's mentors. I've had mentors my whole life. Um, there are two judges in law school. Uh, one of them I mentioned, Judge Amy Karen, where I clerked for her. Um, and then at the Broward State Attorney's Office, many mentors there at the State Attorney's Office who are now sitting judges um, and even judges who were on the bench then um, who I appeared in front of is, is 
one of my dear friends and a mentor to this day. Um, I think mentorship is very important. And that's why I try to mentee. I have or mentor as many mentees as I can. Um, I think that is important to give back and to, um, you know, take on a law student every semester. I try whoever books my class gets an internship with me um, because I think it's really, really a crucial aspect of um, becoming a lawyer and being in our legal community. I know that you you, as you said, you said you were at the state attorney's office for three years and then you went out on your own and started your own law firm or you started a, a private law firm with someone else. Is that well, right? actually, I was hired out of the state attorney's office by a um, very well-known defense attorney in our area, um, Fred Haddad. He was one of the best in um, South Florida, um, white collar, criminal defense, federal and state. And um, he hired me out of the state attorney's office. So I went into his firm, eventually uh, became partner at his firm. Um, and that's when I dovetailed out and started my own firm after three years with him. What made you decide to put your hat in the ring for becoming a judge? Like I said, um, I was at that point um, running my own law firm, but still working very close with Fred um, and um, being in multiple different courthouses all in the same day. You know, the challenges and day to days of running your own law firm, the overhead, um, client management, that type of thing and and dealing with judges. Um, And I was seeing there was, you know, I was seeing some challenges in the judiciary and you know, some areas of improvement that I thought could be improved um, because I, I noticed a lot of the judges or one in particular had who was removed um, shortly thereafter had yelled at me and told me to stop breathing into the microphone because um, I was running up and down the stairs one day. And it's just one of those points in your life where you kind of take a step back and you're like, well, that's not right. You know, I'm, I'm running between courtrooms uh, trying to be on time. And she just told me to stop breathing um, heavy into the microphone. So I think that was a point where I took a step back and said, you know what? I might just put my my hat in for judge and and try to help help these judges, which I've really tried to honor and and do throughout my career as, as a sitting judge. Well, I know before you became a judge, you were involved in the in the formation of the Florida Women's Law Center, and that was, I believe, while you were in private practice. But I'm not sure. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes. Yeah, so um, that just organically came. A lot of women had come to my firm when I was with Fred and asked me to, to sit on their trials, uh, just being a woman. Um, and they would ask me, um, you know, it just it started creating uh, just a kind of like a woman following as to, you know, here's a woman attorney who can help you with domestic violence issues and women issues, women issues in particular. And um, a lot of uh, family cases, matrimonial cases were coming my way. And um, my my good friend was a family law attorney. So I opened a law firm with her her so we could do family cases. And um, that's where the Florida Women's Law Center was created. It gave us the ability to help um, and do a lot of pro bono work for for women um, in distress and 
um, just women who needed help in general, just um, domestic violence issues, uh, business issues, uh, custody issues, and even criminal defense matters. You can give her a shout out if you like, but um, is the Women's Law Center still operating? Yes, yes. And she's still practicing, Nisha Backus. She does family law in Fort Lauderdale and she tries to hold down the fort. Um, we're still, you know, um, best friends and um, talk regularly about, you know, the everyday challenges of, of running a law firm. And it was, it was hard to leave her and to, to, to go on the bench. Um, but it was an opportunity that just, it came to me and it was a calling to serve. And I'm a big believer when you're, when you're called to serve, um, you answer that call. So in 2018, you become a circuit court judge in Broward County. And now it's 2020. 22, have you had to go through a re-election or any kind of, you know, campaign? Yes. In 2020, I was re-elected without opposition in Broward County. And then in 2021, I put my name in to be a circuit court judge in, in the Ninth Judicial Circuit um, because my family was up here and I got married up here. Um, and so uh, it allowed me to be closer to my family um, to be in Orlando. Uh, so I was um, re-elected without opposition in 2020 and then re- reappointed in 2021. Well, I think you're the first of our judges that's been uh, in the same position in two different locations. Uh, I'm wondering if there was any kind of difference. You you sat in the criminal on Broward in Broward um, in the 17th Circuit, and then you're sitting now on the criminal. Are there different kinds of crimes, or is the practice different in in Fort Lauderdale versus Orlando? So, in the 17th Judicial Circuit, I sat first in domestic violence, then in family, then in therapeutic drug court. And while I was sitting in the drug court, I uh, took over the juvenile drug court program. So I was really not a true criminal judge at that in the 17th Judicial Circuit. And then when I was reappointed up here um, by Governor DeSantis, that's when I was put into a true criminal division. Um, but we, of course, there's differences. Um, the 17th Judicial Circuit is a, a very large circuit. It's a super circuit. Um, the 9th Judicial Circuit is, is growing um, extremely fast as well. Uh, and I think we're having those growing pains as far as docket management and case case management um, from the judiciary. Um, it's, it's a challenge, but being able to come from such a big super, super circuit where we had thousands of cases um, at any one time to the ninth judicial circuit where I have, you know, 300, 400 cases, that is, that's really the difference in being able to case manage effectively, to know all of your cases, um, to have a handle on each case is, is beneficial um, as a judge. And so I think that's really the, the differences in the circuit. I want to switch and just talk about a little bit of the differences in the different courts. I know that drug courts are not in every, they're not everywhere all over Florida. 
and tell us what the difference of drug court is versus another court, especially with juveniles. Sure. So the drug court program is a diversionary track. If they complete the drug court program, their case is essentially dismissed and um, they can expunge it if they wish. Um, Each drug court program around the state, you know, we try to, to unify them, but they certainly have their different characteristics. And in the juvenile program, it's an opportunity for these kids to get on track before they turn 18. So that was a um, very rewarding division. Um, You would get the kids 12, 13, 14, 15, um, and and help them turn their life around. And you could do it. I have, you know, the chief judge, Jack Tudor, gave me a lot of discretion with how I wanted to run my juvenile program. Um, So I had a lot of fun with the kids. Um, You know, I had them, again, wellness, 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 working out, meditating, visualization, um, reading certain books um, on, you know, well-being and really just putting their health first and foremost. And, And, you know, you could change lives doing that. And so the juvenile drug court program was really probably one of my favorite divisions. It sounds like it it was rewarding, and especially when you see a lot of horrible things that happen in domestic violence and the other other courts that you were in. Tell us a little bit about champions, and I know that you were you're a champion, which is is something with also related to the drug court system. Yes, yeah, so um, just an, that's a recognition um, in in the drug court field. They they reached out, and and you get to be a part of being a champion in your circuit is, is just being able to take, um, certain level of classes and education, uh, continuing education, and then, um, putting that together for the statewide, um, drug court programs and even nationwide. So seeing what other, um, jurisdictions and circuits are doing as far as therapeutic courts go, um, staying on top of all of your, um, controlled substances, what they're doing. Um, while I was a champion in the 17th Judicial Circuit, certainly fentanyl was um, front and foremost, very, very uh, important. We were losing people every day to um, to fentanyl. So uh, that took a lot of our time uh, down there. But um, just really staying on top of your area of expertise. What well, sounded like you're a subject matter expert uh, almost uh, in that area. Tell us a little bit about the kind of cases that you see today um, and what an average day for you is like? So now straight criminal, I sit on the criminal bench. Um, This is, to me, this is why I became a judge. Um, I get to help people every day and, um, you know, listen and uh, make sure that everyone feels heard, um, give the people the opportunity to have uh, a judiciary that's kind and patient, um, even if we're dealing with heinous crimes sometimes. Uh, it's, I think that's very important because, you know, if you can tell my background is, you know, in criminal defense a lot of the time. Um, and even when it wasn't, it was important for me um, to Make sure that you know our constitution is upheld, um, even while I was at the state attorney's office. And so I have the opportunity to do that um, to make sure that our laws are followed. Um, and 
you know, I, it's just every day is, is such a blessing. I love sitting as a criminal uh, judge because that's it's my wheelhouse for the first time. You know, it's the fifth, fifth division I'm sitting in. But this is this is where my background really um, what my background has set me up to do. So it's a blessing every day. Well, I want to switch gears and talk about uh, a side gig of sorts that you that you have that you just recently released a children's book. I think it's, the book is called Believe, and you released it to celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month here in Florida. First of all, when did you find time to write the book? Uh, and second of all, what inspired you to to write the book? So, um, Believe is a is a three year venture for me. It's something I've always wanted to do, but only said, you know, one day I'm going to get around to writing this children's book. It uh, came about when I was the judicial liaison to the young lawyers uh, section down in Broward County, and we were doing uh, lawyers for literacy and reading to elementary schools, uh, all over the county to children. Um, and so we would go into schools and everyone would, I would say, you know, who hears knows what a judge does. I'm a judge. And all the children would say, well, you don't look like a judge. How could you be a judge? Prove you're a judge, you know? So, you know, enough of, of that in the same questions from these elementary school, um, children, um, asking me, you know, how did you become a judge? And, um, why don't you look like a judge? All of that. I said, you know what? I'm just going to write my own book that, you know, really will show these children that you, judges look like all of us, you know, because our community it looks different. And regardless of your color or your race or your um, what your parents look like or your economic bracket, it doesn't matter any of this if you can believe in yourself and if you... Um, really can manifest your dreams. And so it allows us to talk to the students. I go into schools and um, to boys and girls clubs, to foster care facilities, and really I try to inspire these children um, that, you know, they can be anything that they want to be regardless of what they look like or where they come from. Um, and so it's not just for little boys and girls who want to be judges or lawyers. It's for boys and girls who want to be astronauts or coders, um, anything that they want to be. So it allows to open that conversation into um, believing in yourself, but also to talk about the role of a judge, which is to follow the law, uh, not to make the law, um, to follow the law as it is written. And so it allows for a plethora of um, conversations. And um, so now I'm not just reading other people's books. I get to read my own. Well, tell us um, a little bit about the storyline of Believe. So Believe is a combination of many um, judges that I know um, in my life and my abuela. It's really about a, a young girl named Ter Teresa, which is my middle name, and her grandma. And she comes home from school one day and she says, Grandma, I'm a, a real life judge and um, they have the coolest job. And she's telling her abuela about what a judge does and her gives her abuela an opportunity to tell her and explain to her um, 
why she came to America and why this is the the land of opportunity and that she can be anything she wants to be if she dreams it. And so it teaches um, Teresa to dream what she wants to be and to manifest and to visualize what she wants to become, um, which was a judge. And um, you see her go through the stages and become a, a lawyer and become a judge. And her abuela's there rooting her on at every stage in her life. And then at the end of the book, it talks about, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? How can you achieve these goals? How can you manifest them? Um, what it means to, to do visualization practices and that type of thing with young, with young students. So, um, it's really a storyline, storyline between, um, uh, an abuela, someone's grandmother and inspiring, um, their grandchildren. I see you smiling very, <laughs> you're very proud of that. I, I know it sounds like it was a little bit autobiographical. Is there someone who was the abuela or is it a mix of different people in your from your life? Yeah, I would say, you know, it's two very strong abuelas in my life. My father's mother and my mother's mother, both very strong women, um, have always taught me to believe in myself as well as my mother and my father. Um, many, many colleagues that I sent with sit with now, uh, their story, their, um, their backgrounds, uh, their parents, their grandparents. Um, so it's really a combination of, of the people in my life. I know that you also serve on a number of committees for the Florida Bar, including the Diversity and Inclusion Committee, the Hispanic Bar Association of Central Florida. You're the, you said you were the judicial liaison for that. What kinds of opportunities are there for attorneys in, in Orange County or even Broward County who are listening to help out and maybe become more involved in either mentoring or wellness programs locally? Get involved, um, you know, join the Hispanic Bar Association or whatever bar association you, you um, identify with or, you know, want to be a part of. I, I try to become a, a member of all of them um, because I find them all very fascinating. I um, would say join a Florida Bar Committee if you can get involved there. The diversity and inclusion one's great. But again, whatever piques your interest, if you do, you know, if you're, if you really do what you like to do, then it's not so much work. Um, and that will give you the opportunity to find a mentor or to find a mentee and help others that are coming up behind you. Um, we have such a wonderful legal community that will lift you up if you, um, you know, put your name out there and try to help others and become um, involved and sit on, on these committees. Um, there's certainly plenty of need for it. Well, before we sign off, you just gave a little bit of advice for professionals outside of the courtroom. If you had one piece of advice for a new attorney in your courtroom, what would it be? I think be authentic to who you are and really allow service uh, to guide you along your path. Because, you know, so many people say you've done so much. Like, how did you get from selling yachts and real estate to becoming a judge? But really, it's just allowing, like I said, opening that door to serving others when that when people offer you that opportunity to serve, uh, to say yes, and to really let ser you know service guide you. Well, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Stay safe. Thank you. I want to thank the sound engineer, Clay Shaw, for always making us sound good. 
and Katie Young, Mitchell Ramsey, and Rebecca Bandy from the Latimer Center for Professionalism for keeping us on the air. If you'd like more information on the Florida Bar's wellness programs, Judge Navarro, or her children's book, Believe, check out the links under this posting. Thank you for listening, and be sure to subscribe to Never Contemplated on your favorite podcast service.